The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Do you believe in God? They asked Einstein. And Einstein said, well, there are two kinds of God. There's the personal God, the God that you pray to, the God that smites the Philistines, the God that gives you the bicycle at Christmas. And Einstein thought that, no, God is much bigger than simply a God that kills your enemies and rewards you for being a good boy at Christmas time. No, he didn't believe in a personal God. He believed in the God of Spinoza, the God of harmony, beauty, simplicity that the universe is so gorgeous and so simple that it could not have been an accident. For example, on a sheet of paper, you can write down almost all the known laws of physics. Maxwell's equations for light, Einstein's equations for gravity, and the standard model for subatomic particles. On a sheet of paper, you can write down everything known about the universe, which is amazing. Now, of course, that sheet of paper is incomplete. That's what I, where I come in. I mean, I work on string theory which we think can complete that sheet of paper. But the very fact that we can talk about that is amazing. So Einstein thought of himself as a young boy entering a library, that this whole ocean of books was ahead of him, but all he could do is take the first chapter of the first book, first paragraph, and read it. So this library was the universe this universe of knowledge, and he could only read the first chapter and the first paragraph. So he believed in the God, the God of Spinoza, the God of order, harmony, simplicity, because the universe could have been random. The universe could have been ugly. The universe could have not any stable matter at all. But here we are, living in this gorgeous, simple, elegant universe. roll please <laughs> this is this is this is what's up dude welcome yes. to the deconstructionist podcast everybody i can't believe that we're about to introduce who we're about to introduce 
This is a huge, huge moment for us. This was a big pull. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't believe it. We got the email back and I was like, oh boy. Do you remember when we first started this whole like podcast adventure and some, some people started saying yes to us and we were like, well, let's just start sending some emails out to some, some whales out there, some titans <laughs> and see what happens. And yeah, I was reading this book called the future of the mind at the time. And it was just totally knocking my socks off. Cause I was really interested in like consciousness and like, you know, all these, all these types of things and experience. And I was like, dude, what if, what if we could get Michu Kaku? Yeah. On the podcast. And I didn't even know you were trying to, uh, to book him. But like, we're both science nerds. And uh, obviously, if you like science, you know who this guy is. You've seen him on TV. He's been on all sorts of different uh, programs on, on television. And like, he's one of the brilliant minds out there. And he makes it super accessible. So I didn't even, but I didn't even know that you've been reaching out. And so I remember there was one week where I was like, I want to surprise Adam with a good one. <laughs> and so I had reached out and Adam didn't know. And then all of a sudden, sometimes like Adam will get the emails before I will. And he, he was like, what? <laughs> and of course I'm like, what, what happened? What happened? And, and, and then you told me, you're like, we're like, Michi Okaku's in. Oh my gosh. And I was like, what? I didn't even check our email yet. <laughs> so much fun. So we both geeked out a little over this Totally one. geeked out, man. <laughs> this guy is like, I mean, he's in the fraternity. If you don't know who Michio Kaku is, um, you know, Stephen Hawking's been all over the news lately, obviously, because he, he's passed away and, mm -hmm. you know, gone on to probably one of the other multiverse dimensions or, you yeah. know, where, wherever. He's traveling the which, universe. Which is completely awesome for him. <laughs> right. And um, not for us as much. True. But, um, you know, R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. Hawking. Um, anyway, uh, but like him, Neil deGrasse Tyson, yeah. Brian Greene. Michio Kaku, these people that have made these unbelievable scientific um, phenomena accessible to people like me. <laughs> yeah. This guy, is, this guy is absolutely next level. Like, if you've ever dug into string theory, mm -hmm. if you've ever just dug into any kinds of, like, really interesting theoretical physics, physics you know, be it astrophysics or, you know, um, regular just, you know, quantum physics, whatever, um, You've probably come across Michio freaking Kaku and gotten your mind blown. Or at the very least, I think it was during the Super Bowl, you probably saw him in a commercial. I think it was an insurance commercial or something. Was it like a QuickBooks commercial or Yeah. Or um something along those lines. <laughs> it's the what's the uh the accounting house? Um Oh, uh HR Block. Yeah, I think it was maybe it was an think, HR Block commercial. I think it was that one, yeah. <laughs> But well, yeah, well done. He's he's all over the place. Um, he's a, a professor of physics at the City University of New York, co-founder of String Field Theory. He's the author author of uh, several widely acclaimed science books, including Beyond Einstein, The Future of the Mind, the one that Adam mentioned, oh. Hyperspace, Physics of the Future, and Physics of the Impossible. Um, he's a scientist and futurist contributor for CBS This Morning and host of the radio programs. Science, fantastic, and exploration, and he's been on all sorts of other TV shows um, on the Science Channel specifically. Um, you know, so if you if you see a guy with uh, kind of long gray hair talking about wormholes, that's probably him. Oh. Um, and if you're into the future of space travel, um, like I used to nerd out to uh, when I was a kid, um, I was definitely the kid who. Um, you would get those books because I'm old, right? So they used to have these books in the library where you would, you would, um, it would have a bunch of addresses in it. 
And so, like, you would send self-addressed uh, stamped envelopes uh-huh. to, like, baseball players. Yeah, I, I did that. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, like, that's how I got, like, Stan Musial's autograph, you know? Like, he would, he would, he would mail back an autographed baseball card. Beautiful. Well, I was also the kid who not only did that, but I was also um, mailing for information from, like, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. <laughs> and I would get this big manila packet full of, you know, all the future satellite missions they had and, and like, learning about that. And so, this book... Uh, his new book that's out is called The Future of Humanity, Terraform- Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. Um, it's just another like book for him that's that's incredibly accessible, um, even if you're not like a physics uh, geek. Um, it's incredibly easy to understand, and every chapter kind of uh, flows the same way, where it talks about where we've been, uh, where we are now, where we're headed. When it comes to a particular technology, whether it's um, the, the the shuttle program or you know um, traveling to uh, other planets or other moons within our solar system and beyond, it's just um, fascinating stuff. So anyway, it's absolutely fascinating. So I think that um, pro- we should probably just roll tape on this. But Denver, yes, we can't wait to see you. Yes, we can't wait to see you. This there, comes out the week of that event. There are still a few tickets left. Mm-hmm. You people that are late to the show. Get on it. Get on it. Let's hang out. We sold a bunch of tickets. It's going to be a good group of people there. It's going to be a lot of fun. Surprise guest. There's going to be a surprise guest. There's going to be plenty of opportunity to just hang, have a, have a beverage, engage, um, some content. It's going to be so much fun. We're just, we can already feel the electricity. We're stoked. Get online, www.thedeconstructionist.com. Go to live events, um, or you can search The Deconstructionist on Eventbrite and grab a ticket. It's 10 bucks, just helping us cover some of the cost of the venue because we needed to find a sweet space for us to all hang out. And uh, let's make some new friends, reunite with some old friends, talk about some nerdy stuff, and have a really, really good time um, just hugging it out. Yeah. <laughs> We're looking forward to it. That's the 28th, April 28th. Uh, it's a Saturday night, and it is at, for those of you that are from the Denver area, um, it's at the Savoy at Curtis Park. It's a super cool little venue that's uh, just a couple blocks away from from where the uh, the Rockies play. So, Boom. excited to check it out. But for now, we have to roll tape on the legend himself. Mm. We bring you Michio freaking Kaku. Welcome to the uh, Deconstructionist Podcast. Uh, we are so excited to have you on, and uh, just thank you for taking some time out of your schedule uh, to be with us here today. Well, glad to be on the show. We're obviously going to be uh, talking a little bit about your new book coming up here in a, in, in a second, but uh, you have so much work that, that spans so much. You're, you, so many things have been published. You, you know, you've participated in so many different conversations and uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that, and maybe even before you do, I was wondering if I could get you to kind of think back, you know, before you've been so well published and participated in so many amazing things, back to when you were first starting to question things for yourself, because our podcast is really a podcast that's all about the journey and, and how questions take us into the journey of what it means to, to live and live well and live life. If you could think back to that time before you started doing all this research, before you'd been published, get back to that mindset 
What were some of the questions that kind of put you on the path to becoming, you know, who you are now? Well, it all started when I was eight years old. Back then, my teacher announced that a great scientist had just died. Everyone was talking about it. And they published a picture in the newspaper, a picture of his desk with a a book that was open. And the caption says something like, this is the unfinished manuscript from the greatest scientist of our time. Now, I said to myself, wow, unfinished? I mean, come on. If he's the greatest scientist of our time, why couldn't he finish it? I mean, it's a homework problem, right? (laughs) Couldn't he talk to his mother? I mean, what could be so hard that he couldn't finish it? Well, I went to the library, and I found out his name was Albert Einstein. And I found out that the book that he couldn't finish was called The Unified Field Theory, Mm. the theory of everything. He wanted an equation one inch long that would allow him to, quote, read the mind of God. And I said to myself, wow, that's for me. That's what I want to do. When I grow up, I want to I work on this great theory, a theory that he couldn't, he couldn't finish. But also, uh, being an eight-year-old kid, I watched the Saturday morning shows, and they had Flash Gordon on. And I was hooked. I mean, the future with rocket ships, with ray guns, with aliens, with monsters. I mean, what's not to love? Hmm. But then later, I found out the two loves of my life were really the same. You see, Flash Gordon is about the future. And the man who makes it all work was Dr. Zarkov. And what was Dr. Zarkov? He was an Einstein clone. He was a physicist. Now, I didn't know what physics was. I didn't know what a physicist was. But watching Flash Gordon... I realized that's what I want to be, a physicist. Einstein was a physicist. Zarkov was a physicist. And what did they invent? They invent the future. I mean, think about it. Television, radio, microwaves, uh, rocket ships, GPS, uh, computers, transistors, lasers, all of them were discovered and invented by physicists. And so that's how I decided to become a physicist. Oh, that's incredible, man. So, so speaking of which, um, you have this new book out. It's called The Future, or it will be coming out, rather, um, around the time that this uh, episode releases. But it's called The Future of Humanity, uh, Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. And Obviously, this is something that piques the curiosity of a lot of people. Um, you know, are we alone in the universe? Um, you know, it, regardless, you know... Will we ever be able to to reach the stars and to explore, um, you know, like our the early pioneers did, even in in the the United States and that sort of thing? Um, so this book really starts out, and you, you talk about the the space uh, program within the within the United States, and this is something as a child of the '80s, I grew up watching space shuttle launches and that sort of thing, and I remember the day when they retired the shuttle program, and we didn't really have anything in place to replace it at the time. But you kind of talk about like the heyday of the, the shuttle program and kind of where private industry has taken over. Um, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and some of the exciting developments that are currently happening. Well, in 1966, at the height of the Cold War, the Apollo space program, NASA, consumed 5% of the entire federal budget. 5%. That's huge. That was unsustainable. And as soon as the Cold War began to wind down, boom, 
out went the space program. And so for 50 years, NASA has been more or less the agency to nowhere. It doesn't go where, go anywhere anymore. And a lot of young people that were inspired by all these space shots began to get kind of discouraged. There was no Sputnik moment. There was nothing in their life that challenged their thinking process. Now, prices have dropped so much in the last 50 years that we're entering a new golden age of space exploration. For example, the movie The Martian, a Hollywood movie with Matt Damon, that cost over $100 million. That's more than the price of an actual Martian probe sent by the Indians for $70 million to Mars. Think about that. A Hollywood movie costs more than a mission to Mars. When they give out the Oscars, they should give out the Oscar for Best Supporting Space Probe to Mars. <laughs> and so you realize that we're entering a whole new ball game. And three weeks ago, three weeks ago, millions of people were on the web watching the launch of the Falcon Heavy. Now, why were thousands of people lining up in the streets of Cape Canaveral to watch that launch? That was no ordinary rocket. That was a moon rocket, a moon rocket fully capable of orbiting the moon. And who paid for it? A private individual, Elon Musk. Who would have thought that a private individual could, by his own money, fund a moon rocket? And not only that, but the booster rockets are reusable, which could eventually drive down the cost of space travel by a factor of 10. And also, as you know, last December, President Trump said that we have a new goal for NASA. NASA will no longer spin wheels around the Earth. The goals are the moon, Mars, and beyond. That's the new mantra, moon, Mars, and beyond. It's a national policy now. So we're really entering a new era of space travel where the cost of space travel has dropped tremendously. The Chinese have announced that they're going to plant their, their flag on the moon. The Indians, as I mentioned, have sent their probe to Mars less than the cost of a movie. Things have really changed. Man. You know, it's, it's just so fascinating to, to read a book. Uh, you know, I, I read your book, The Future of the Mind, also. And, and this one, you know, I followed your work more in the, like, uh, theoretical physics arena. And it's just, you're always a lot of fun to read. And I, I really enjoy some of these works where you've kind of stepped out of that normal sphere of talking about string theory and just normal physics. And you're applying some of this work to other things. And the, the chapter I found most interesting in, in your book is Kepler in the Universe of Planets. And talking about inhabitable life on other planets and really everything that goes into that question. And, you know, as somebody that likes to ponder the questions of what does it mean to be human and how theology and philosophy and science all come together, it seems like at the heart of that question is, you know, obviously aliens, but, you know, human beings want to believe, you know, that we're special. And so, you know, you start off with these quotes like Immanuel Kant, Nikola Tesla, you know, believing that there's got to be life somewhere else? Like there's so many questions. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on alien life? I mean, you know, there's, and, and why is that more eminent now as a possibility than ever before? Well, we used to have something called the giggle factor. You talked about flying saucers and UFOs and aliens to a scientist, and they would start to giggle and roll their eyes to the ceiling, but we don't do that anymore because we've now discovered 4,000 planets going around other stars. We have a census of the Milky Way galaxy now. On average, on average, every single star you see at night 
every single star has a planet going around it on average. Incredible. Think about that. And one in 20 have Earth-sized planets going around them. So you do a census of the Milky Way galaxy, our backyard, and you come up with several billion. There are several billion planets in our own backyard, and one day perhaps we'll visit them. Now, to be honest, I get a lot of emails and, and statements from people. Some people say, bah, humbug. I mean, I've already been there. I've been abducted by aliens from out of space. What are your thoughts? Well, you can't rule it out that some people have been abducted by aliens from out of space, but I tell them, I tell them next time you're abducted, steal something. I don't care what it is. An alien paperweight, an alien chip, an alien pen. For God's sake, steal something. (laughs) Because otherwise, who's going to believe you? You have no bragging rights. Who's going to believe you? Yeah, Yeah. If somebody's done forbidden experiments on your private parts, well, you have alien DNA on you. That'll that'll end the debate right there, alien DNA. End of question. So, yeah, personally, I think they're out there. Now, then the question is, how come they don't visit the White House lawn? How come they don't announce their existence that, hey, here they are. They're going to give us all this advanced technology. We're going to enter the age of Aquarius. Well... If you're walking on a country road into the forest and you meet a squirrel or a deer, do you try to talk to them? Well, maybe initially, yeah. But then you get kind of bored because they don't talk back. They have nothing interesting to say to you. So for the most part, you leave them alone. And if you see ants in an anthill, do you go down to the ants and say, I bring you trinkets? I bring you beads. I give you nuclear energy. Take me to your ant queen. Or perhaps you have this politically incorrect urge to step on the few of them. So I think that if intelligent beings that are that advanced, that they can reach the earth from thousands of light years away, if they're that advanced, we are like forest creatures to them. We really have nothing to offer them. So they'll for the most part, they'll just leave us alone like we leave alone the forest animals. To kind of tag off of um, Adam's question here, do you think that then some of these projects that we have in place to try to to make contact or or find evidence of extraterrestrial life, um, do you think we're going about it in the right way? Then I know one of the things that comes to mind is the SETI project. Do you think that perhaps they're so far advanced that they're not even using um, that type, that means of communication, and we're just not using the right methods? Well, I have good friends in the SETI project. They're PhD physicists like myself, and they hope that, you know, the aliens use radio to communicate. But I tell them, isn't that kind of stupid? I mean, aliens that are thousands of years more advanced than us use radio to communicate with. Mm -hmm. And they tell me, well, what else can we do? I mean, that's all we know how to do. You see, in my book, um, I talk about laser porting. Yes. That, I think, is perhaps the way aliens will go across the universe. You know, within 100 years or so, we're going to digitize the brain. We have the Connectome Project to map every single pathway of the human brain. 
This is now an obsession of brain scientists to map the brain. Once you map the brain, the coding can be put on a laser beam. And we can shoot that laser beam into outer space. In one second, you're on the moon. In 20 minutes, you're on Mars. In one day, you're on Pluto. In four years, you're on Alpha Centauri, the nearest star. And what do we find on the moon? On the moon, there's a receiving station where your consciousness is downloaded and downloaded into an avatar. Now, this avatar is not virtual. This avatar is a robot, a robot with superhuman powers that can live on the moon, that can, that can do superhuman feats on different planets. And so in an afternoon, you can teleport yourself across parts of the solar system. And each time, uh, reliving yourself as a Superman. Now, I personally believe that it is possible that there's a superhighway next to the Earth where we have billions of souls being laser-ported at the speed of light, and we are too stupid to know it. We don't even have the means by which to understand laser-porting. We simply stand there like, like, like a dumb bunny, just wondering what the hell are the aliens doing. <laughs> so the night sky, even though the night sky seems so bleak and empty, it could be teeming with billions of souls just zapping their way across the Milky Way galaxy, and we are too stupid to know it. Man. It's just stretching my brain all over the place. <laughs> I have to compose myself to ask questions. One of the other things that uh, you tackle in your book that I just find absolutely just fascinating because I just feel like it's an endless question and I love those types of things. I'm just a glutton for punishment, I guess, is, you know, you're talking about immortality and, um, you know, brain science, um, you know, artificial intelligence, you know, these, these types of things. And it, it begs the question that you get to at the end of that chapter uh, that you ask, is the soul merely just information? And, I, and you even relate that a little bit to consciousness. I was wondering if you could just riff about that a little bit. You know, wh you know what is the soul? Is it just information? How does that relate to consciousness? Well, during the Middle Ages, there was something called dualism, that the soul is one thing, but the body is another. And when you die, the two separate. Then in the 20th century, we discovered neuroscience. And people begin to say, bah, humbug, they're only neurons. We don't see any soul in there. Where's the soul? We just see a bunch of neurons in the brain. Well, now we're sort of coming back to the Middle Ages because our most advanced science shows that we can digitize things. And maybe we can digitize the human brain because the Connectome Project, probably by the end of the century, will have a complete map of the human brain. And when you die, your physical body will decay but your connect home lives on forever. And I personally think that in the future, when you go to the library, instead of taking out a book about Winston Churchill, you'll talk to him. There'll be a holographic image in front of you that has all the mannerisms, all the speeches, all the memories of Winston Churchill. I mean, I wouldn't mind talking to Einstein. <laughs> I'd love an opportunity to sit down with the man, have a great conversation with Einstein. And maybe one day your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchild will talk to you and have a great conversation with you. Now, then the next question is, is that really you? Well, to paraphrase Bill Clinton, 
It all depends on how you define you. (laughs) (laughs) If you are a biological entity, then you're talking to a tape recorder, a very intelligent tape recorder, but that's not you. If you is everything known about you, your mannerisms, your thought processes, your neurons, everything that science can tease out of you, if that is you, then, yeah, you become immortal. So I call this digital immortality. Now, in addition, of course, we have biological immortality as well. We're now using artificial intelligence to search for the genes that control the aging process. You know the Greenland shark lives over 400 years of age. How do we know that? Because the eyeball of the Greenland shark grows in layers, like tree rings. You simply count them. And you can show that the Greenland shark can live, yeah, more than 400 years of age. So genetically, we're just made out of the same DNA. They just have the DNA rearranged in a different way. And so think about the human body. We might one day become immortal. For example, where does aging take place in a cell and in a car? Well, in a car, aging takes place in the engine because that's where you have moving parts. That's where you have combustion, oxidation. That's where you have the wear and tear. Well, where is the engine of a cell? The mitochondria. And that's where most aging takes place. And so one day we'll have gene therapy to fix the mistakes that build up in the mitochondria, and maybe we'll live forever. I mean, I personally think that most of our grandkids may have the option of hitting the age of 30 and stopping. They may like to be 30 years of age for many, many centuries. It's something that we scientists now have to seriously consider. Oh, my goodness. So... So to kind of talk about it, stay on, stay on the same uh, track in terms of um, the, the future of, of human beings and, and, and that sort of thing, one of the big topics you talk about in this book is um, becoming a multi-planetary species. And so one of the things you talk about is colonizing, and, and obviously the, the hot topic right now is colonizing Mars. Um, so talk, maybe you could talk a little bit about, because you address this in the book, why Mars? Why is Mars the best candidate? Uh, versus, say, um, our, our twin planet, Venus, and um, what, what would it take to accomplish it? Because you also address some of the issues that I wasn't even aware of, um, some of the tolls that it takes uh, on a human body uh, in terms of the, the length of time and space and the, um, the differences in, in, in gravity and atmospheric pressure. Well, when I was a kid, I read Asimov, who had a series for young people, and the astronauts there vacationed on Mars. I mean, vacation on Venus. Venus is our evil twin, about the same size of the Earth, except closer to the sun. And therefore, it's tropical. Therefore, Asimov and others thought there would be uh, beautiful, beautiful beaches. They could relax on Venus. Boy, were we wrong. (laughs) Venus is a (laughs) hellhole. It's 900 degrees Fahrenheit. When you walk on the surface of Mars, your feet sink into molten lead and molten tin. Atmospheric pressure is 100 times that of Earth. It would crush you. When it rains, it rains sulfuric acid. So if you were to walk on Mars, on Venus, 
first of all, the heat would reduce you to a bunch of ashes. The sulfuric acid would dissolve the ashes and just leave a liquid, a goo, on the surface of, of Venus, and the goo would boil because it's so hot. So Venus is off the list. <laughs> now, Mars, on the other hand, is cold, but it might be possible to terraform Mars. So first, our astronauts would use lava tubes to create a Mars base to protect themselves against radiation. Second, they would melt and mine the ice for drinking purposes and decompose the ice into oxygen and hydrogen, oxygen for breathing, and hydrogen for rocket fuel. Third, they would create genetically modified plants to create agriculture on Mars so that you become self-sustaining, so you don't have to rely on care packages from the Earth. Then you need satellites to beam solar energy to the ice caps to melt the polar ice caps of Mars. Mars has plenty of water. Once upon a time, Mars had an ocean the size of the United States. Once upon a time, it had riverbeds, seas. By melting the polar ice caps, you will thicken the atmosphere, and water will flow again on the surface of Mars. So it's possible, though of course this is now for the next century, it's possible to make Mars into a Garden of Eden. Wow. So, just out of curiosity, uh, I know there are a lot of projects currently taking place. Elon Musk with SpaceX is um, is the one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he's very aggressively uh, attempting to make this a reality. How far off are we in, in all reality from actually sending human beings to the surface of Mars? Yeah. Well, NASA finally laid out a timetable. Uh, people have been pestering NASA for years. Uh, NASA used to be the agency to nowhere, and now it's the agency to somewhere. Yeah. And now it has a timetable. Well, here it is. Next year, next year, 2019, we're going back to the moon. The SLS booster rocket is being fired up, so it'll take our astronauts on the Orion Space Module around the moon December 2019. Then 2023... Humans start to go back to the moon. 2026, we create an outpost, a a lunar orbiter that orbits around the moon. Then around 2030 or thereabouts, we use the lunar orbiter as a staging area to build the Mars rocket. The Mars rocket is going to be built in outer space. It'll take two years to go to Mars. Now, to go to the moon is a hop, skip, and a jump. Three days, you're on the moon. In fact, you can leave on Monday and come back on the weekend. (laughs) And therefore, I think the moon will eventually become a honeymoon site. In the future, not anytime soon, but in the future, people will go to the moon for tourism and for, for a honeymoon. It's that easy, in retrospect, to go to the moon. Mars, of course, is difficult. It's two years for a journey, nine months to get there, nine months to come back. Now, if you use plasma engines, and this is still controversial, you might be able to go to Mars in just a few months. And that would really reduce the time for, for, for settlers to reach Mars. But that's a whole other question, whether or not we can use plasma engines to reach Mars. 
So, so talk about that a little bit, because that's one of the questions I had is, is there's a section of the book that's really interesting where you really go into uh, potentially the different types of propulsion. Because right now, obviously, um, we're, we're realizing pretty quickly here that, that liquid fuel is not necessarily um, going to be probably the way that, uh, that we travel great distances across space. So we have to look at other options. And I know you mentioned um, ion propulsion, fusion propulsion, um, and then you referenced earlier um, the, the concept of nanoships um, and that sort of thing. So what, so what, what options do we have, and and what's what's conceivable? What what are they already beginning to work on? Well, off the shelf technology to build a starship is not going to give us Star Trek and the Enterprise. Uh, that's out of the question. But it could give us chips. That is a, a fingernail sized chips that we put on a parachute inflate them with laser beams to 20% the speed of light so we can reach Alpha Centauri in 20 years. This is with off-the-shelf technology. And once again, a Silicon Valley billionaire is backing this. They've already raised $100 million to create the breakthrough Starshot program to swing chips around the nearest planet to the Earth and another solar system, Proxima Centauri B. Now, if you want to send the enterprise, then you have to start to engage other kinds of propulsion. One is fusion rockets. That is the power of the sun that you use hydrogen, you burn it in a fusion engine, and you can attain, well, who knows, maybe up to half the speed of light in the most optimistic scenario. Another possibility is, because of course you eventually run out of hydrogen gas, is to scoop the hydrogen gas with a ramjet engine. You know, jet airplanes do not contain oxidizers. They contain hydrogen, but not, not oxygen for burning purposes because it's air. The oxygen of a jet comes from the air. So for a rocket, why shouldn't the hydrogen in a rocket come from interstellar space? So that's a possibility. The ramjet fusion engine looks like an ice cream cone. You scoop hydrogen in the forward direction. And then more speculative is the antimatter rocket. Antimatter does exist. We play with it. Back when I was in high school, I built a science fair project in which I photographed and played with antimatter. So antimatter is real. Antimatter can release vast amounts of energy, but it's rare, extremely rare. So, you know, there's always a catch somewhere. But that's why we think that in a 100-year time span, we'll have the first starships. And so NASA has already commissioned the 100-year Starship Study Group. So they're looking at what technologies would be available 100 years from now. Now, if you want to go faster than the speed of light, then that's a whole other discussion we can, we can talk about. But that's, so far, we're talking about sub-speed light travel. So, so yeah, let's, let's continue down that road. So, because one of the questions that, that always comes to my mind is, so... All of these propulsion systems essentially are all about going, you know, essentially farther distances and, and faster. So, what if we're looking at the question? Uh, what if we're looking at it wrong? What if it's, the idea is not to go faster, but to uh, try to find ways to warp or bend space and time? Um, is that is that something that uh, theoretical physicists are looking into at this point? I know I've read some things um, in terms of wormholes and that sort of thing, maybe finding shortcuts. Right. There are two ways in which you can use Einstein's theory of general relativity and the quantum theory to break the light barrier. 
Um, the first is to compress space. You know, an acquaintance of mine, another physicist by the name of Miguel Alcabier, he was watching Star Trek one night, and he looked at the starship very carefully, and he said to himself, well, how does this starship move? And then he realizes that the starship could move by compressing the space in front of it and expanding the space behind it. So let's say you want to walk across a carpet. How do you walk across a carpet? Well, one way, of course, is to walk from point A to point B. That's a hard way. But let's say there's a table at the other end of the carpet. You could lasso that table and drag it. Drag it so you compress the space in front of you, expand the space behind you, and then you just hop across. So you did not really go to the table. The table came to you. So in this way, you don't really go to the stars. The stars come to you. And so Alcabier sat down, looked at Einstein's equations, and bingo, he found a solution. Rather amazing. But it's a solution of Einstein's equations, which allows you to go faster than the speed of light. And it's also a time machine, by the way. You can go backwards in time that way. The other, way, as you me- the other way, as you mentioned, is a wormhole machine. In 1935, Albert Einstein himself, was the first to introduce the wormhole with his student, Nathan Rosen. And today we call it the Einstein-Rosen Bridge. The Einstein-Rosen Bridge is this gateway. So that if you have a black hole and the black hole collapses to a dot, like what most books say, you die when you go through a black hole. But if you actually have a spinning black hole and work out Einstein's equations, this was done in 1963 by Roy Kerr, It turns out that you don't collapse to a dot at all. There's no dot at all. Forget everything you read in the the textbooks. It collapses to a ring, a rotating ring called a Kerr ring. And if you fall through the ring, you wind up in a parallel universe. Oh, my gosh. So the ring is the looking glass of Alice. Alice sticks her hand through the looking glass, and her hand winds up on the other side of forever. That's the wormhole. That's the black hole. The rim, the rim of her looking glass is the neutrons spinning in a black hole. Now, if you saw the movie Interstellar, in that movie, Matthew McConaughey goes through a wormhole in a black hole. And the computer simulation, well, it was done by a computer. And who helped us set it up? Hip Thorne, who just won the Nobel Prize last year for physics. So we now have Nobel Prize winners looking into the possibility of creating a wormhole machine to the stars. Oh, my gosh. Now, what's the catch? There's always a catch someplace, right? Or else we would have done this yesterday. Right. (laughs) There's always a catch someplace, right? What's the catch here? Well, you just work out the math. The energy necessary to create an Alcubierre drive or wormhole is enormous. You're talking about the energy of of a black hole. And to stabilize it, you, you need negative energy, which is even stranger. So you need lots of positive energy. Now, so I, I thought to myself, well, the movie Interstellar was conceived of by physicists. So how did they get around this problem? How did Matthew McConaughey go into a black hole to leap to the other side of the galaxy? Well, at the end of the movie, they finally gave you the clue. The wormhole design came from the future. It was our descendants many, many, many years into the future. 
they realized that there was a point in their own past where they might have had life extinguished, but somebody came to the rescue. So they said to themselves, we have to go back into the past and give the secrets of the wormhole to our ancestors. So that's where the energy came from. The energy came from the future. Unbelievable. I mean, obviously, we could ask you about 10,000 more questions, just all, all in that, but I'm trying to zero in just a little bit as uh, we're starting to move towards the end of our time together, towards some, um, a lot of our listeners, you know, myself and John included, um, really love to talk about science as it um, combines with theology. So, you know, you just mentioned multiverse, and this has come up so many times, and I think this is just so fascinating. You talk about, even at the end of your book here a little bit, um, how the multiverse you know, plays into things like the Copernican principle, which, you know, simply states that there's really nothing special about the earth. So if the earth is just, it's just a piece of cosmic dust wandering, as you say, aimlessly through the cosmos. But then we've also got the anthropic principle, which kind of says that our existence is very unique and very, very special. And um, you talk about how, you know, the multiverse has been used to kind of explain away any kind of design or any kind of quote unquote, God, but, but you say that there's another way to look at this problem. Uh, I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Well, Einstein gave us this idea that the universe is a bubble. We live on the skin of the bubble, and the bubble is expanding. That's called the Big Bang Theory. However, string theory goes beyond Einstein and says there could be other bubbles out there. And everyone wants to know what happened before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, what happened before the beginning. Well, if string theory is right, it means that there are other bubbles out there, and these bubbles can collide or peel off baby bubbles, and that's the Big Bang. So the Big Bang is nothing but the collision of, of universes in a bubble bath. So the multiverse idea is a bubble bath of universes. Universes are happening all the time. The Big Bang was the quantum effect. Quantum effects mean that it happened once, it could happen again. Big Bangs are happening all the time in some distant part of the universe. Now, when I was a child, my parents were Buddhist, but I went to Sunday school, a Presbyterian Sunday school. And, of course, there are two diametrically opposed concepts of creation. In the Judeo-Christian theory, there was a time when someone said, let there be light, and the universe got off the ground dramatically. Then you have Buddhism, which says, no, 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 no. There's only nirvana, timelessness, that the universe has no beginning, the universe has no end. There's only timeless nirvana. Well, now we can meld the two ideas into a single theory, the multiverse theory. Because in the multiverse theory, there was a Big Bang. There was a time when something or someone said, let there be light, and the universe got started. There was such an incident. But the quantum theory says it happens all the time. It happens again and again as bubbles collide or peel off baby bubbles. So, in other words, these baby bubbles, they have their own genesis, but genesis happens all the time. And where does the bubble expand into? 
Because the universe is expanding. What is it expanding into? It's expanding into hyperspace, 11-dimensional hyperspace. And so we have a situation here where nirvana is 11-dimensional hyperspace. Mm. And nirvana is timeless. But within nirvana, genesis happens all the time. Mm. So I, I find this a very pleasing point of view that the multiverse idea can combine the, the two different diametrically opposed ideas of where the universe came from. Oh, I, just, I, can, I can feel people sighing with, with great joy <laughs> yeah. at that wonderful, beautiful, mysterious answer. I love it. Uh, and this kind of touches on some things that I've, I've read from you and, and seen uh, you talk about around uh, how you talk about the idea of God. Obviously, you know, when we talk about these things, language is a really, really big problem. And, you know, what do you mean by God? And it's all about what your definition is and all these kinds of things. But you've got some really unique things to say about the question of God. And I think we're already kind of starting to talk about it a little bit. So, you know, Michio Kaku, renowned astrophysicist, theoretical physicist, you know, you've said cosmic music resonating through 11-dimensional hyperspace. So, so what is God to you? How do you put some words from your background to that, to that word? Well, let me say two things. Uh, first of all, Galileo was asked these questions, and Galileo said the purpose of science is to determine how the heavens go. The purpose of religion is to determine how to go to heaven. Oh. This means that science is about natural law. It's about how the heavens go. But religion is about ethics, how to go to heaven. What is the good? What is the bad? Uh, who's a righteous person? Who's not? What's evil? What's good? What's bad? That's an ethical question. Now, the problem is, the problem occurs when people from the sciences start to pontificate about ethics or when people from religion start to pontificate about natural law. That's when we get into a big problem. But as long as we keep this distinction separate, I don't see any conflict at all. Because science says nothing about what is good, what is bad. I mean, if I have a trial by your peers in a jury, science doesn't tell you what is ethically right or wrong. Behaviors are decided by society. So that's why religion and science are mutually exclusive but complementary. Then Einstein was asked the question, well, what about God? Do you believe in God? They asked Einstein. And Einstein said, well, there are two kinds of God. There's the personal God, the God that you pray to, the God that smites the Philistines, the God that gives you the bicycle at Christmas. And Einstein thought that, no, God is much bigger than simply a God that kills your enemies and rewards you for being a good boy at Christmas time. No, he didn't believe in a personal God. He believed in the God of Spinoza, the God of harmony, beauty, simplicity, that the universe is so gorgeous and so simple that it could not have been an accident. For example, on a sheet of paper, you can write down almost all the known laws of physics. Max's equations for light, Einstein's equations for gravity, and the standard model for subatomic particles. On a sheet of paper, you can write down everything known about the universe, which is amazing. Now, of course, that sheet of paper is incomplete. That's what I, where I come in. I mean, I work on string theory, mm -hmm. which we think can complete that sheet of paper. But the very fact that we can talk about that 
is amazing. So Einstein thought of himself as a young boy entering a library, that this whole ocean of books was ahead of him, but all he could do is take the first chapter of the first book, first paragraph, and read it. So this library was the universe, this universe of knowledge, and he could only read the first chapter and the first paragraph. So he believed in the God, the God of Spinoza, the God of order, harmony, simplicity, because the universe could have been random. The universe could have been ugly. The universe could have not any stable matter at all. But here we are, living in this gorgeous, simple, elegant universe. That's how he viewed it. Mm. That's perfect. Mm. So uh, to draw this to a close, we just have a few, um, I guess, lightning round type questions that were provided by uh, my brother, who is a, a science teacher at Genoa Middle School. Uh, he teaches an eighth grade science class here in Westerville, Ohio. So he had some questions that uh, provided some questions that uh, they, they wanted to ask. So um, just ask you a few of those and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll bring it to a close. But um, Stella O asks, if we lost one of the planets in our solar system, would it affect Earth? And if so, to what extent? If we lost one of our planets in the solar system? Yes. Is that what you said? Yeah. Well, it depends on which planet you're talking about. Uh, planets have a gravitational pull on each other. In fact, that's how we found um, some of the outer planets, is by looking at the wobblings that they executed, and we assume that they exist because the inner planets wobbled. So if a planet were to disappear, uh, the, the trajectories of the other planets would be slightly altered, They'd wobble a little bit, but not much more. The solar system would still be intact. Planets would still go around, but the orbits would be slightly altered because of the absence of a planet. Oh, perfect. Uh, Jaden MS, in space, can you create a strong artificial gravitational field and artificial atmosphere with water? In space? Like how? How would you create this artificial atmosphere? Uh, they didn't give us that part of the, <laughs> part of the question, I guess. I guess they're leaving that up to us. I'm not sure. <laughs> well, um, artificial gravity can be created by spinning objects. So in the future, the problem of weightlessness could be solved by spinning a spacecraft. However, it's very expensive to have a spacecraft that big that you can spin around. But that'll give you artificial gravity. Now, some people talk about anti-gravity. Unfortunately, anti-gravity is not allowed according to the known laws of the quantum theory. In fact, anti-light is light itself. Anti-gravity is gravity itself. And so you're not going to find anti-gravity fields or, or hoverboards like in the movie Back to the Future. Dang it! So as far <laughs> as creating artificial gravity, you can do it using spinning objects. As far as creating artificial atmospheres, you have to do it the hard way. And that is you're going to have to import, import vast amounts of oxygen and nitrogen into outer space, which is, of course a very expensive proposition. So it's better if you wanted, for example, to create oxygen on Mars. It's better to take the ice of Mars, melt the ice, separate out oxygen from hydrogen, and then you can get oxygen on Mars. Hmm. All right, we'll, we'll give you one more here. And um, this is a, kind of a, a hot topic um, in recent years um, in regards to the, the universe itself. Um, is the universe infinite, or is it just exceptionally large? 
Well, the short answer is we don't know. Um, the latest theory is called inflation, which was proposed by a colleague of mine, Alan Guth at MIT. He may eventually win the Nobel Prize for inflation, but it has not been thoroughly uh, verified yet. It does fit the data, though. Inflation says that there was a cosmic event called the Big Bang, a turbocharged event that was much faster and bigger than we previously thought. But because it was a quantum event, it means that it could happen again and again and again. And again, the most likely theory of the Big Bang is a multiverse of universes. Now, that has not been experimentally verified. But the inflation theory does give us the closest theory that fits the data. And inflation theory says the universe is probably infinite. But again, you can't really tell because it, it might be so flat only because the universe is much bigger than we thought. So the short answer is we still don't know. The betting is that it's probably infinite because we see that the universe seems to be very flat because of inflation. Inflation flattened out the bubble. But again, it could have been a, a bubble that got flattened out by inflation that appears to be flat. So the short answer is, believe it or not, we physicists are still debating this question as to whether or not the universe is infinite or finite. Wow. Dr. Kaku, can I ask you just one last question? Okay, one last question, and then I got to go. Last question. Um, it seems like, you know, answers always continue to produce new questions. And everybody that listens to this podcast, one of the things we have in common is, you know, we've, we've all been damaged in some way by some kind of need for certainty or lust for certainty. So, you know, as a theoretical physicist, uh, somebody that asks questions for a living, what, what are your thoughts on a lot of people's need for certainty in our culture and how might, you know, mystery be something that could help a lot of us? And how does mystery play into what you do for a living? Huh. Uh, well, Einstein once said that the sense of the mysterious is one of the deepest emotions that we can ever experience. And, um, well, gee, how do you approach that question? Well, if everything is certain and there's no mystery left, then, of course, we get a little bit depressed and <laughs> there's nothing to, to venture forth. For example, President Barack Obama talked about the Sputnik moment. The fact that in 1957, Sputnik went up and galvanized generation after generation of rocket scientists and physicists and chemists. I was part of that, the Sputnik moment. However, the Sputnik moment dissipated. So we lost interest in these grand challenges, mm. and we turned inward. And some people think we need a new Sputnik moment. In yes. fact, uh, President Barack Obama even said that explicitly. Well, now President Trump just last December announced an executive order saying that, yes, we are going to go to the moon, we are going to go to Mars, and we are going to go beyond. There's a new challenge out there. Prices are dropping. We know much more about the universe than we did back in the 1960s. And we need something to, to challenge young people. And I think this is one way to do it. We're not going to bankrupt the country doing it. Of course, we still got to solve problems like global warming and nuclear warfare, but there's no reason why we can't do two things at the same time, clean up our own act, as well as discover new universes. Mm. So I think we're entering a new golden age, a new golden age of space exploration. Thank you so much, Dr. Kaku. This has been quite an honor. Okay, my pleasure. Take care.
we just finished talking Michio freaking Kaku. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I can check that one off my bucket list now. The the <laughs> amount of enthusiastic excitement coming from your side of the desk throughout that entire interview was knocking me out of my chair. <laughs> I was I was summoning up all of my like science questions I've had from from childhood. The way you were just like paging through the book and being like, oh, I get to ask him this next. I get to ask him this next, and like, oh my gosh, this is so fascinating. I had like five pages of notes. <laughs> There's like probably people that listened through that and the, and then are like. Did they just like pull a big guest, you know, for, for what, like, how does this fit into the, like the deconstruction motif? Let me tell you how. I don't think that you can read science right now without it starting to get you to ask new questions and wonder about the deeper issues of existence and humanity and future and like what all these things mean. So it's almost, maybe this isn't, necessarily deconstructing anything that you currently think but if you let it it's going to take you down the path to start to ask some really really cool questions yeah if you're paying attention like well what if this and what if that and blah 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 and what does this mean and how does this fit into that like the whole like when we were talking about like the soul and i asked him like you know about the soul and like consciousness like that is a universe of places you can go to ask new questions and challenge maybe some of the ways that you've looked at it before in a really healthy way. I don't know. I just, I felt like I needed to say that. Like, it's just a, yeah. it's a good thing to get people on that, that don't necessarily seem to fit in our, our niche necessarily. Well, I think it goes back to the, the longstanding debate, at least within modern times over, you know, um, does science, science and religion, you know, do, can they, can they coexist, you know? And, and we would argue absolutely. Oh my gosh. You know, and it goes back to silly, silly, silly thing to me. Yeah. As if the Bible was written to explain how God did things, you know, it's like, no, no, no. Like science can still kind of give us a glimpse at like God's creative powers. And I think anybody who's ever watched um, one of my favorite uh, series, Cosmos mm. with uh, the, the new version the uh, or DeGrasse, the old version. The Neil deGrasse Tyson one. Yeah. If you watch that first episode, oh, he's such a baller where he's, he's talking about multiverse theories Oh yeah, and, and like, I'm sitting there thinking, well, of course. God is this God of like, that's what I thought, like never ending power and, and diversity and creativity, of course, on and on and on it goes. I remember I was pastoring, um, you know, at the time, this is like maybe five, six, seven years ago, and I was relatively new and I was kind of the theology police, like, you know, I'll be honest, <laughs> but I've always had the like inquisitive mind, which is probably how I ended up here. And somebody brought in, I think it was Newsweek or Time, I can't remember, but it was a magazine and it was like multiverse, like it was like, okay, let's all... This is pop culture now. Like, let's talk about multiverse. And somebody was like, what do you think of this? Like, you know, and I knew where they're going with it. Like, oh, does this challenge, you know, interpretation of Genesis and, you know, literal versus blah, 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 blah. And I was just like, if God is a, a creative, like, let's just use that. Like, if God is a creative. Yeah. That makes more sense to me then than anything else. Yeah. Of course it's endless. Of course it keeps going. Yeah. Of course we're unaware of how many possibilities. That makes more sense to me. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at the, um, there's a statistic that Kaku gives at the beginning of the book, and I'm going to try to paraphrase it if I can, um, where he talks about looking at um, just the possibility of Earth-like planets uh, that, that revolve around sun-like stars. Mm-hmm. 
And so scientists have an equation where they can kind of roughly calculate that. Uh, and so they, the, the first part of that equation is looking at like how probable or how many planets would that, you know, an estimate be just in our solar system. Mm-hmm. And it comes out to be like 20 billion planets <laughs> just in the Milky Way. And then the second part of it, and this is the part that I think really just blew my mind, just in the visible universe. So with our current technology, what we can actually see of the universe Meaning and implying that the, the universe is so much larger than we have even the capability to, to even visually see at this point. Like, there's more out there that we can't see. Mm. <laughs> Just hurts my brain. But love it. That equation, uh, if, you, if you expand it into the, the visible universe, is 20 billion trillion Earth-like planets. And, and, and that, so, yeah, the universe just keeps, continues on. We don't know so what you're saying, if there's an end. What you're saying is there's aliens. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it might be a sponge, uh, but there's something it. out there. I love it. <laughs> oh, I love it. It's so great. I'm, I'm feeling it. Yeah. Anyway, this is yeah. just uh, this is a ton of fun for us. Um, thanks for listening. Hopefully, you guys, you know, really maybe felt the need to like instead of you know always reading philosophy, philosophy or you know theology or or whatever. Maybe uh, maybe maybe try reading some science. Maybe try reading some science and realize how that speaks so well to your philosophy and theology and psychology and things like that. Because all of these things, you know, interrelate. So, um, yeah, yeah, fantastic. If you can't, if you can't look at Hubble uh, pictures that, that the Hubble Space Telescope has taken and not, like, completely say, yeah, God is the ultimate artist, then I don't know what to tell you, man. There's some beautiful, beautiful shots of just supernovas and oh my and death and rebirth in the universe that i i mean they're just astounding but before i forget though i want to hello we're having some mic mic difficulties here popping in out there's <laughs> there's construction going on in my house right now so <laughs> that's part of it tripping some breakers probably so i want to send a big shout out to uh my brother hello my brother's uh eighth grade science class in uh genoa uh genoa i don't know genoa genoa uh, Ohio, his middle eighth grade middle school class uh, sent us some really awesome questions. We tried to squeeze in as many as we could. Um, Dr. Kaku is actually kind of running out of time, um, so we we didn't have the quite the, the the full amount of time that we would have had. But we tried to get as many questions as possible. So I want to say a special shout out, uh, special thank you to, to to my brother, Mr. Williamson's class, uh, especially Colby, Jaden, Stella, Scott, and and the rest of the. Uh, the students that sent in some really awesome questions. So super cool. Try to get as many answers as we could. So hopefully you guys are happy. Start them young, get them curious. (laughs) That's right. Super fantastic. Well guys, thank you so much for tuning in again. Thanks for hanging with us. Thanks for continuing your journeys. Thank you for um, giving deconstruction a a positive vibe. Cause that's what we're all about here. It's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, It's a positive thing. Um, We'll see all you people in Denver who come out. And um, thank you to all our Patreon supporters. Yeah. And uh, anybody else has any questions, comments, or anything else, hit us up on the interwebs. And for now, we are your hosts. I'm Adam Narlock. And I'm John Williamson. Grace and peace, everybody. But it doesn't
Time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.